Okay, so my message is entitled, Experiencing God Through Motherhood. So moms, let me ask you a rhetorical question this morning. Hey, did God reveal some things about himself to you when he let you become a mom? Well, the answer is absolutely. And for those who are not moms, you have also experienced some of these things about God as well through family and church family and friendships. So please turn in your Bibles today to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 this morning. We're going to, we're going to begin where life begins. Would you please stand with me as I read David's intensely personal account of God's handiwork of our creation in our mother's womb as described, well, under the inspiration of God, yet with magnificent poetry. And I'll begin reading here in verse 7. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. May we pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can open your word. We can hear from heaven. We can be encouraged. We can be challenged, instructed, inspired to love you, to love our family, to love others. God, help Help us to understand the, the brevity and the fragility of life. God, help us to use this day for Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, several years ago, AOL had a Mother's Day survey. And they asked the question, how much should your mom make? And they gave four answers, uh, $50,000 a year. $100,000 a year, a million dollars a year, or more than Bill Gates. Well, of the 24,000 people that voted that survey, 55% said more than Bill Gates, and second runner-up was more than $100,000. Moms, all of your kids and grandkids would disagree with that survey and say that your worth is priceless. There's no price tag that we can put on your love and your care and your faith and your sacrifice. In fact, Proverbs chapter 31 says your price is far above rubies and diamonds and precious gems. Moms and grandmas, you're priceless. You're priceless to your family and church family and country. So moms, how can you experience God through motherhood? So today, we begin to answer the question by looking at one of King David's most famous psalms. Scholars are not sure that if David wrote this before his great sin with Bathsheba or after. 
But it seems pretty obvious that David wrote the psalm at a time when he came to a full understanding that God knows everything about him, even all the tiniest details of his life. God knows everything about him, and yet God still loves him. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the ugly. And he still loves us with an everlasting love. With David, we can all say that God knows all about us. He knows everything that we have ever done, ever said. So I believe David wrote this when he was older, not younger, because of this description of God's full understanding of every place he has ever, ever been, every deed he has ever done. Look at verse 7. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, uh, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, and Sheol, behold, thou art there. David says, wherever I go, God, you're already there, and you are with me. Uh, do you have that kind of view of God? That no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter what you have said, God knows all about you and he still loves you. As long as you are breathing, as long as you are still alive, you can come to God or you can come back to God. There may be those in your past that wrote you off as a failure, but not God. He is still in your corner. He is still calling you to come and to walk with him. And so whether you're young or old, whether you're married or you're single, you can still claim the May memory verse you find in your bulletin today, Jeremiah 33, 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. That's for you. That's for me. So moms, how can you experience God through motherhood? Well, first of all, mothers experience God through his miraculous power. We call it the miracle of birth. Every person, I mean every person, has come into this world through this miracle of birth. Only Adam and Eve were created, created directly by God. The rest of us, well, God created us through birth. He gave us a living and eternal soul. And so at the moment of conception, God began to fashion every detail of our body and our soul, our facial features, our height, our body type, our hair color, our eye color. We are so unique and so special to God that no one has the same fingerprint that you have. I mean, think about it. With billions of people who have ever lived, it's still pretty amazing. You're so unique and so different. You say, what about identical twins? Well, with a standard DNA test, identical twins are indistinguishable. They may look exactly alike, but any forensic expert will tell you that identical twins do not have matching fingerprints. You and I are so unique, so special to God. Only until recently could moms and dads begin to see into the womb what God has seen from the beginning of time. Tatiana Guerra, she lost her sight at the age of 17. But she married, she became a first-time mom at the age of 30. Tatiana, there she is in the bed, blind. She asked the doctor in Portuguese, what does his face look like, doctor? The doctor said, well, his nose looks like yours. As a mom, she began to experience God's miraculous power of birth. 
as she began to touch the 3D ultrasound image of her son who was still in the womb. Something a blind, expectant mom had never done before in history. It's pretty cool, isn't it? It's pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, uh, verse 13, verse 13, uh, for thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. God is our divine designer, and he created us exactly as he wants us to be. He is the everlasting God, and he makes no junk. Verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. What is our response to our creation? It's to be praised. I will praise you. Not, oh, I wish I looked like the model on the cover of the magazines. Not, oh, God, I wish I were taller. I wish I were shorter, more beautiful, more handsome, smarter, stronger, more athletic. No, a thousand times no. God made you the way he wanted to make you. He did not make any mistakes in your design. So do not give in to the temptation, as many teenagers do, to complain to the perfect creator, God, who made you. Paul asked in Romans 9, where art thou that, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to the thing that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? You know, Paul is actually quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. Look at verse 15 with me. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now, the phrase lowest parts of the earth, that's a, that's a poetic way of saying my mother's womb. God fashioned the details of your design. So I have a question for you today, Mom. How many elbows do you have? Two. How many knees do you have? Two. How many feet do you have? Well, two. Uh, remember the third trimester of your pregnancy when, when we could feel that baby moving around and maybe your husband was close by, maybe, maybe one of these teenagers up here sitting in the, in the bleachers, they were, they were close by and you grabbed them and said, hey, hey, come here, come here, feel this, feel this. And you grab their hand and you put their hand on your belly and say, you feel that? That's your baby sister's elbow. Or oh, that's, your, that's your baby brother's uh, knee. Do you have three knees? Do you have three elbows? Do you have three feet? No, that's someone else's body. You're going to hear it online, on social media. My body, my choice. My body, my choice. It is a false abortion narrative uh, because I want you to know that that is a, a different body. It's not your body. It's a body that God has made. And moms, because you, you, you choose life for your baby, you experience God, you are eyewitnesses of his miraculous power. It's incredible that a living, breathing human being was brought into this world that is now going to live forever somewhere, either in heaven or hell, depending on whether you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Moms, you can experience God through motherhood. You can experience God's miraculous power. Secondly, you can experience uh, God's strength. Mom, sometimes, sometimes our kids find themselves in a pickle, a problem 
at no fault of their own. But sometimes, like in church when they're not paying attention, sometimes they get into trouble all by themselves. Uh, but sometimes they do it when they're when, uh, no fault of their own. We live in a sin-cursed world where trials hit us. If you would, let's turn back to the book of Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. And you'll read a mother's worst nightmare. In Exodus 1, the Jewish people, they have been in Egypt for 400 years. They've grown from a family clan of about 70 up to a nation of about 2 million. In verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And so this new pharaoh, this insecure ruler, he fears the growing population of the Jews. It was not enough to make them slaves. Now he wants to control their population by killing the baby boys. You see, eugenics was not something new with Hitler's Nazi Germany. Eugenics was not something new with Margaret Sanger's Planned Parenthood. No, it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 1. Look with me in verse 22. Exodus 1, 22. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. You know what happened here? What is, a, what is a mom supposed to do when the supreme ruler of the land says every baby boy is to be drowned in the Nile River? What is a mom supposed to do when they say your son is going to be murdered? It's a mother's worst nightmare. She's going to have to rely upon God's strength like never before. What is she going to do? Well, she's going to turn to God. She's going to pray. She's going to fast. She's going to, to make a plan to save her son. She goes to God. She makes a plan. And so let me read it to you here in chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2 and verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi, Jochebed. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took him for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch, put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept, and she had compassion on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Isn't that great? In the sovereignty of God, Pharaoh's daughter just happens to be walking by. God dispatches an angel from heaven, pokes Moses. Hey, little baby, you got to wake up. You got to start crying. It's showtime. And that little baby begins to cry, and Pharaoh's daughter, her heart just melts, and she goes over, and, and she adopts him. And, but she needs a, a Hebrew mom to be a nursemaid for, uh, for a few months, and so she actually pays Jochebed to care for her own son Moses. God's sovereign plan. What did she do? She relied upon God's strength. 
Uh, the plan worked because God answered a mother's prayers. God gave his strength in a very difficult time. Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, young people, if you will believe and if you will obey God, if you will seek God, he will give you his strength when you need it the most. Do you know that maybe, just maybe, the big trial of your life is ordered by God? The big trial that you don't like, the big trial that you complain about, the big trial that you want to get away from, maybe God has let that big trial come upon you, just like Jochebed, so that you might turn to God and trust God and experience God's strength. Moms, how can you experience God through motherhood? Well, thirdly, mothers experience God's grace. Have your kids ever disappointed you? Have they ever done something foolish or hurtful or sinful? Have your kids ever embarrassed you or frustrated you? Have your kids ever done something where they, where they tried to help but they kind of only made things worse? I, I love the story. I love to retell the story about the mom in Darlington, Maryland. Edith was coming home from a neighbor's house one Saturday afternoon. Things seemed too quiet. Uh, uh, there as she approached the front door and, and curious, she peered through the screen door and she saw five of her children huddled together, concentrating on something. As she crept closer to them, trying to discover the center of their attention, she could not believe her eyes. Smack dab in the middle of the circle of her children were five baby skunks. Edith screamed at the top of her lungs, Quick, children, run! And each kid grabbed a baby skunk and ran to a different room of the house. <laughs> Your kids ever do something to try and make it better and they only made it worse? Now, unless you have cameras installed in every room and monitor your children 24-7, believe me, they have done things that you don't want them to do. But... Maybe you need to remember some of the things that you got away with when you were young. But I'm pretty sure that your kids have not disappointed you as much as the first child ever born to the human race to the first mother. Yes, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 4 this morning. Genesis chapter 4. We read the account of the first murder. It was not caused by gun violence. It was not caused by the efforts or the lack of efforts by the government. You see, there was no government in Genesis 4. Cain killed Abel because of jealousy, because of hate, nothing more. He didn't use a gun. They had not yet been invented, but he still killed him. Look with me at Genesis chapter 4 and in verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. He killed him. He could have used a rock. He could have used a rope. He could have used his bare hands. But the Bible says that he killed him. And then God speaks to him in verse 9. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Well, that's a lie. I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain is a murderer and a liar. Isn't it interesting when you get to John chapter 8 that Jesus, in describing the devil, he calls him what? A murderer and a liar, John 8, 44. 
So Cain gave in to the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. More important than gun laws is to let Bible-believing teachers go into the public schools and share God's love and share God's truth. That's what our country needs. You know, the first public school buildings in our country were church buildings. The first public school teachers in our country were pastors. And the first primary textbook was the Word of God. Young people need to be taught love and truth from God. Out-of-control gun violence is a direct result of systemic broken families. And if we help build families, and that's what we do at Valley Forge Baptist, we help build families, we reduce gun violence. In your notes, among the 25 most cited school shooters since Columbine, 75% were reared in broken homes. Dr. Peter Langman, a preeminent expert in school shooters, found that most came from incredibly broken homes, not just divorce, but also infidelity, substance abuse, criminal behavior, domestic violence, and child abuse. Moms, never give up praying for your kids. Never give up praying for your kids. They need you. They need your prayers. Two of the sweetest saints that ever walked God's green earth were George and Flora Fritz. How many of you remember George and Flora Fritz? All right, several of you. Back in 1992, they renewed their vows on their 50th wedding anniversary. They were married for over 60 years. This is the fifth, a picture of their 50th when we celebrated. I remember uh, we had a couple's retreat planned for New Jersey, and we got a call, and uh, they had double booked, and so they asked if we would be willing to change our date, and we did. And so uh, because of our kindness to them, they, they threw in and gave us the uh, penthouse suite on the top floor, the entire top floor of the hotel. He said, well, what do we do with the penthouse suite for a couple's retreat? Well, we gave it uh, to the Fritzes and to the Rudders, and they, uh, uh, they spent the night up there, and we all went up, crashed the party, had potato chips, and dipped with them. Uh, some, anybody remember that? Or a few of you there for that? Yeah, it was a fun time. Well, the Fritzes, uh, the Fritzes prayed and prayed for their kids. They had two sons. Soon after this event, their son Larry, who had been away from God for decades, returned to the Lord. He came to our church. He served faithfully until his home going. He found out that a Calvary Baptist over in, uh, in Pottstown didn't have a song director, so he went over. He became the volunteer song director, played the trumpet, and served God there until his death of an aneurysm. Within about a year, his brother Doug died in a car accident. You understand, George and Flora Fritz, they, they buried both of their sons. Both of their sons. But God gave them grace. And if God can give them grace, I'm here to say to you today, He can give you grace. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He said, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, what does he say? Then I am what? Strong. It's God's strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10. So moms, how can you experience God through motherhood? Well, you experience God's miraculous power at birth. You experience God's strength. You experience God's grace. One more, you experience God's sacrificial love. 
A mom will make any kind of sacrifice for her child. We've all heard the stories of moms who sacrifice their safety, even their life, to protect their children. Maybe you've read some of the stories, whether it be an earthquake, a hurricane, or a tornado, where a mom instinctively wraps her body around her child to protect. Sometimes the mom dies and the child lives. I had read of one story of a mom and child buried in the rubble, and, and the child, she said, I, I'm so thirsty, I'm so thirsty. And the mom kept giving her a sip. What she did is she cut her fingertips, and the child would suck her blood. They both survived. Moms, you understand a little bit of God's sacrificial love because that's what he put in your heart for your kids. You do anything for your kids to protect them. And because you would do that, you begin to understand God's love for us when he would let his son die on the cross for our sins. Mary was at the cross when Jesus died. John 19, 25, and 26. And as Mary stood there at the cross and she looked up and she saw her son, Jesus, dying, her mind flashed back to that time there in Jerusalem when she and Joseph presented Jesus before the temple and an old prophet of God, Simeon, took, took baby Jesus and he verified this is the Savior, this is the Messiah. And in the midst of this great joy of announcement, Simeon also made this prophecy, and he said, But a sword shall pierce through your own soul. Luke chapter 2, verse 35. Can you picture the scene of Mary there? Can you feel the emotion? You see, this is agape love. This is sacrificial love. This is the love that you give to sacrifice yourself for the benefit of someone else, where you put yourself aside to be a blessing and a help to others. And this is what God the Father did for us when he offered his son Jesus to die in our place, to take our hell so that we can be forgiven of all of our sins and spend eternity with him. That's love. You can know a mother's love, and you can give a mother's love but we all need to experience God's love. And God's love came through the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, when he rose again, he offers this gift of salvation. You can experience God's love and you'll never be the same. John 6, 47, Jesus said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believeth on me has everlasting life. You want to live forever? You want to spend eternity in heaven? You want to know God as your loving Heavenly Father? Trust Christ. Believe upon Christ. There in your notes, God's love can be received into our hearts when we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again. If you want to experience God, then receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Begin to follow Christ. And you will know the true love of God. You will experience him. May we pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this great love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the love of moms. We know it is your love that you give to them. And so, Father, today we pray that all the moms will feel special. All the sons and daughters will honor the mom. Even if their moms are no longer with them, may they speak righteously of them to others today.
And now with our heads bowed or eyes closed, I have a question regarding your eternal destiny. If you died today, do you know for certain that you'd go to heaven? Or do you have some doubt? If you'd say, Pastor Wendell, I know that I will go to heaven because there was a time in my life that I gave my life to Christ. I am born again because I believe that he died for me and rose again. I understand God has no grandchildren. I have a personal living faith with Christ. You cannot get to heaven on the faith of your parents or grandparents. It must be a personal faith. And if you can remember that time, you might not know the date, but you remember the time where the Spirit of God convicted you and you invited Christ to be your Savior. Would you simply raise your hand all over this congregation if you have that confidence and peace? Thank you. You may put your hands down. You'd say this morning, Pastor, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven. But you know, I have some doubt. I'm just not sure. I don't have that peace that you just talked about. Today, I invite you to receive Christ as your Savior. It's not about joining the church. It's not about getting baptized. We have a baptism Sunday next week. It's about you and God, you and your relationship to God, you understanding you can't go to heaven with your sin and only Christ can forgive you. And so right now, whether you be here or watching online, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. That is, the day you hear the good news is the day you're supposed to respond. And so right now, would you pray with me? Would you believe? Would you trust? Would you call upon Christ as your Savior? You say, how do I do that? Well, you pray from your heart earnestly. You can pray silently. God will hear the prayer of your heart. Would you pray with me now from your heart? Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. Heads about, eyes are closed. If you just pray with me, may I say to you, welcome to the family of God. I'd like to pray for you this morning. I'll not call you out. I'll not embarrass you in any way. But simply, would you raise your hand for a moment? Just hold it up that I might see it. I want to pray for you today. Anyone at all? Yes, Pastor, I pray with you. Yes, thank you. God bless you. Anyone else? Yes, Pastor, I pray with you today. Just hold your hand up high for a moment to receive Jesus as my Savior. Father, thank you for working in hearts. Now I pray that each one of us would want to show our love to you our love to mom and dad and family and church family. God, do a mighty work. Help us to treasure the special gifts you've given to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My faith, so we'll go to Hebrews 11, if you would, please. The great faith chapter. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. There's a lot that are my favorite, and it's hard to pick one, so I don't have just one, but... But this is definitely one of them that I thoroughly enjoy reading and studying every time. And Hebrews 11. How many of you remember the television show from the 1980s uh, called That's Incredible? 
How many of you remember that? Right? I mean, it's, you're going to be about my age or older, right? <laughs> if you remember that uh, television show. It ran for a few years. It was a reality uh, television show, a show that hosted uh, various Americans doing incredible feats. Some of the things that they did were truly bizarre uh, and even dangerous. And so they would warn you, you know, before they would show this feat that this guy might do. They'd say, now don't try this at home. And that was one of their phrases that they kind of repeated over and over again. Now, of course, I know that's kind of a, a liability statement, you know, that a television show would make like that. But there's a subtle message in that, too. And that is that if you're just an ordinary person, like all of those who are watching, if you're just an ordinary person, then you shouldn't attempt to do something extraordinary. You see, the world's idea of becoming extraordinary or incredible is to do something that no one else can do. But God has a different criterion for his evaluation. He says that faith makes the difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary. Faith makes the difference. So we come to Hebrews 11, where we, we see this passage brought out to us in vivid color. Hebrews 11 is not a hall of fame, at least as the way the world would um, think of it. You wouldn't have found any of these people that you find listed in Hebrews 11. You wouldn't have found any of them in the Guinness Book of World Records or on That's Incredible. At least not for what God notes about them which is their faith. But they are listed in God's hall of fame, if we can call it that, his hall of faith. They were ordinary people who did extraordinary things because of their faith. Faith makes the difference. Faith makes the difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary. One of my favorite quotations comes from Merle Daubigny's biography of Martin Luther. In fact, I, I love the quotation so much that my wife had it engraved for me one year on a plaque that I um, have hanging on the wall. After discovering uh, justification by faith, Luther discovered it while he's studying the book of Romans, and in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he comes to that statement, the just shall live by faith. And after that discovery, rediscovery really, because it had been there all along, and he came to understand what the doctrine of justification by faith really is, Merrill writes this. This precept struck him. There is then for the just a life different from that of other men. And this life is the gift of faith. Let me say that again. There is then for the just, the saved, the righteous, a life different from that of other men. And this life is the gift of faith. So not only are we justified by faith, but the life that we must live after we're saved is also by faith. And here's the essential truth of Merrill's statement. 
The life that we live is different from the lives of those in the world. And that difference is faith. I've had you come to Hebrews 11, but I want you to back up to the, first, the verses in the end of chapter 10. Because this is really, as he's drawing these arguments in chapter 10 to a close, this is what is the springboard into chapter 11. Look at verse 38. He says, Now the just shall live by faith. There's that quotation again. In fact, that, that verse, which comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is quoted three times in the New Testament and is one of the most oft-quoted verses in the Old Testament. It appears in Romans, in Galatians, and then here in Hebrews. Now, the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul, this is God speaking, shall have no pleasure in him. Now the writer of Hebrews says, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Here, folks, are the two kinds of people that there are in this world. Here are the two destinies, right? Those that believe to salvation, those who do not believe unto perdition, to damnation. That's it. That's all there is. It's the people who believe and the people who don't believe. The people who live by faith, the people who don't live by faith. He says, we are those who believe. We live by faith. A life lived by faith is what takes you from the ordinary life that everyone else in this world lives to the extraordinary life that, as we learn from the next chapter, pleases God. Faith makes the difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary. Now, as you know, chapter 11 is full of examples of what that faith looks like. But before he actually talks about those people, he gets into a definition-like statement. So look at verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, I don't think that this is actually a formal definition of faith, but it does capture the essence of faith that's being lived out, the, the kind of faith that he's going to describe in this chapter. And I'm confident, as I've, as I've studied this, I've even become more confident, if I were writing the book of Hebrews and I were going to write this summary verse for this chapter, I would not have written this. Okay? I don't know about you, but this isn't what I would have come up with. Faith is substance, Faith is evidence? Is that what you think? So what are we talking about? The world scorns us because they say we have no substance and no evidence for what we believe. God says differently. So let's unpack the verse and take a look at it. First thing I want you to notice about this faith that we're talking about here, the faith that makes the difference is that faith sees beyond the present. Faith sees beyond the present. The world, I'm talking about the people outside of faith, outside of the church, the world lives for the here and now, right? They don't see anything beyond the present life. 
And since it doesn't see it, then it denies that there's anything else that exists. For example, they deny God. They deny heaven. They deny eternity. Some years ago, when a Russian astronaut returned from space, he said, some people say there is a God out there, but in my travels around the world, all day long, I looked around and didn't see him. I saw no God, nor angels. The rocket was made by our people. I don't believe in God. I believe in man. His strength, his possibilities, his reason. Of course, as someone has quipped, if he'd have stepped outside of his astronaut suit, he would have seen God. But here's the point. This is essentially the way the world thinks. They believe in what they can see. They can't see God, so they don't believe in God. And even the ones who say they believe in God, folks, it doesn't really affect their lives. You know these people. The ones you work with. The ones that are your neighbors. Oh, yeah, I believe in God, but it doesn't really change anything because ultimately, what do they believe in? They believe in themselves. They believe in their strength, their possibilities, their reason. So for people like us who believe in God, and especially for people like us who believe in the Bible and believe it from cover to cover, <laughs> we're considered outdated right? According to today's thinkers, anyway. In fact, they tell you that you're going to be left behind. The world's moving forward in progress. You're just grasping at a shadow, a relic of the past, a fantasy. Or are you? See, according to the scriptures, folks, faith is what enables you to see beyond the present. How does it do that? Well, here, it's here in verse 1. First of all, it is assurance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is assurance of something you don't yet have. I want you to take a look at that phrase, things hoped for. The things you don't yet have, but you hope will be yours. Do you realize that Christianity is made up of many things that we do not yet have but we hope for heaven, a resurrected body, a reunion with your loved ones who've gone before, the eternal presence of God. Not a single one of us has experienced any of those things that I just named yet. And all of the ones, the believers who have experienced them, have gone beyond. And they're not coming back to tell us about it. So what do we do? We're left to believe in something that we hope for. Now, when the Bible talks about hoping for something, it doesn't mean merely wishful thinking, like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I mean, we had rain today, so I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's just wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is referring to an expectation that we have. Here's a good verse for you. Romans chapter 8, verses, that's two verses, 24 and 25. For we are saved by hope. That's what Paul says. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. 
for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So once you see it, it, then it's not something you're hoping for anymore because obviously it's yours. But until then, we hope for it. We wait patiently for it. So there's a lot of things in the Christian life that we don't yet have, but we believe them. How do we know that we do not grasp or embrace a delusion? That it's not just a mist that's going to disappear the moment we try to reach out for it. What kind of assurance do we have? Is there any guarantee? And the Lord says, yes, there is. The word substance that you have in that verse. Now, faith is the substance, means assurance or guarantee. Some have even suggested that it's a title deed. Faith is your title deed for all the things that the Bible tells you to hope for. Now, if you purchased a plot of ground and you did not get a chance to see that, but they signed to you a legal copy of a deed, and your name is on that deed, and they hand you that piece of paper. You haven't seen it, but you know you've got it, don't you? It's yours. By reason of that paper, that deed, legally registered with the government, that is your piece of property. That's what we're talking about here. Or let's put it in other terms. It's like when you go to Sears, does anybody shop there anymore? Maybe not, I don't know. But uh, uh, it used to be, you'd go to Sears, and uh, you'd go to their appliances, and you'd, they'd have all the models on the, um, on, on the floor. But the, the actual appliance that you would buy was in the back warehouse. So you would look at it, and the sales guy would come over and talk to you and tell you why you need to buy the most expensive one, and you kept going down to the cheaper ones. And uh, then finally, you would settle on something probably in the middle, and you'd give him your credit card or your payment, and you'd pay it, and he'd run it through, and he'd hand you a slip. He'd say, now drive around back to the warehouse and give this to the boys. Do you remember that? How many of you have done that before? Now, you gave him your money, and all he gave you back was a piece of paper and stapled the receipt to it and told you to go present this at some window and you'd get what you bought. And you believed that they were holding one back there for you in their warehouse and that if you presented that paper, you'd get it. And you were right. You see, faith is that kind of substance. It's that kind of assurance. We know it's there, even though we, haven't, we don't have it yet. It's ours. Faith is the title deed of things we don't yet have. But faith is only as good as the object of that faith. And this is where people get confused in the world, especially. If your faith is rooted in yourself or in your dreams your hoped-for outcome may never come about. It's like the people that you meet, and you talk to them about salvation, and they tell you that, oh, yeah, I'm going to heaven. You ask them, how? How do you know? Well, I'm a pretty good person. That's the answer they give you. 
I'm a pretty good person. That kind of faith isn't going to save them because it's rooted in themselves. It's in their own good works. That's no assurance. See, the writer here isn't just saying, just believe, you know. If you believe, well, hard enough, it'll happen. That's not a point. That's not the kind of faith he's talking about. He's talking about a faith that is rooted in something else. If you're out on a boat and you're drifting and you want to stop from drifting, you don't pick the anchor up and throw it to the other end of the boat. Right? <laughs> it's not going to stop anything. You've got to take the anchor and throw it outside of the boat onto something solid. That's what keeps you from drifting. And your faith has to be in something solid. It has to be rooted in something solid. And that's the Word of God. And the promises of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So our faith is rooted in the Word of God. It's rooted in His promises. And that's why our faith is a guarantee of things that we don't yet have. I want you just to look at some of the examples from this chapter. We're going to get into these um, as we go on in the weeks to come. But, but let's just uh, quickly look at a few of them. Verse 8. Here's Abraham. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out. Look at this, not knowing whither he went. Did he have the land yet? No. But he believed it would be there because God said so. Or Sarah, verse 11. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child because, or when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Did she have a son yet when she believed? No, but she believed that God's promise would come to pass. Well, then there's Moses, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. There he is. Did he, did he have the reward? No, he didn't have the reward. In fact, he never got it until God took him home. But, but he believed that it would be his. He had that assurance because he knew what God had said. Because they believed God's word, it was real to them, even though they didn't yet possess it. That's how faith is assurance. But secondly, I want you to notice what this verse tells us. It is evidence of something you can't yet see. The evidence of things not seen. Faith is that which enables us to go on in spite of the obstacles, to believe what our senses cannot see or maybe um, find it impossible to explain. The worldly man lives by his senses, you know. So it's, it's um, that what he feels and he sees and he hears, he tastes, he smells. That's what he believes in. That's why the secular man believes in evolution. 
It's something that he can see, or he thinks he can. You know. He really can't see evolution, but what it is, he's believing in the things that he can see in this world, the things that he can touch. And he says, see, I don't know about a God, I can't see him, but I, I believe in these rocks. I can see layers in rocks, and I can come up with my own idea about how they got there and so on. Look at verse 3. It says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. You see that again? The things which are seen are not made of the things which do appear. So we reject the idea of evolution. By faith we accept the creation account. We say that the world did not evolve. It was not made of the things which are here already. They say, well, how do you know? And you say, well, because God said so. Now, they don't like that idea. They say, that's no evidence. But it is evidence. That's what the Bible is saying. For the Christian, we know it is solid evidence. The word evidence that's in that verse means proof, especially legal proof. It even has the idea of evidence that's admitted to a courtroom. Think of that evidence admitted to a courtroom. Now, folks, let's make this a little more practical. The world makes decisions day after day based on its senses. The things it can feel, see, and hear, and so on. That's the way they make their decisions. If you want to move from the ordinary to the extraordinary life, you have to make your decisions based on faith. So you attend church. You attend church faithfully. You come out even on Wednesday like you did. Even though when you open up your schedule or your phone or wherever you have that schedule and you look at it, you go, I don't have time. But I make time. Because God says this is what we should do. You give the Lord a tenth of your income. Even though when you look at your checkbook, it says you can't afford that. But God says, that's what I want you to do. So you give, believing in God. You serve the Lord, even when you don't feel like it. I was a pastor for 20 years, and there were days I didn't want to be a pastor. <laughs> I'll just be honest. There were some days I didn't want to go to church. There were some jobs I had to do that I didn't want to do. And I have a feeling that if we, if, if we got to talk to all the other pastors, Pastor Eifert's the only one that's here right now, and we sat them down, and they were honest. They would tell you there are days that they don't feel like serving the Lord. You know, I want to just stay in bed. I don't feel like dealing with this, or whatever the case is. Folks, that's when you get up by faith, and you go do it anyway. You see, that's not being a hypocrite. <laughs> that's being a man or a woman of faith, because you're doing what's right. It doesn't matter what your feelings are saying. That's what the world does. The world lives by its feelings. 
But we don't do that. We choose to live by faith. You do what's right, even when all your friends are doing the opposite around you. You go, why do you do that? They say to you, why do you do that? You go, because it's right. It's what God tells me to do. Living by faith. You see, it's that kind of evidence that affects the way we live. Look at a few of these examples in uh, uh, the, the chapter. You have Noah in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He couldn't see it. Could he see the flood coming? You know, the man had never even seen rain. <laughs> and yet, he had to believe it. Well, then there's Abraham, verse 9 again. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Look at verse 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's a beautiful verse. Abraham lived in this world the same way we live in this world, knowing that his ultimate home was not here, but there. Did he see it? Not with his physical eyes, but he did with his spiritual eyes. You see, that's what it is, folks. Faith gives spiritual eyes to us to see the promises of God that we can't see with our physical eyes. Faith sees beyond the present. But verse 2 tells us that faith lives above the ordinary. It says, for by it, faith, the elders obtained a good report. So each of the men and women cited in this chapter were just ordinary people like you and I. We think that they were extraordinary because of what they did and accomplished, but really what was extraordinary was their faith in God. Faith makes the difference between that ordinary and the extraordinary. So, do you want that life of adventure, that extraordinary life? You know, the most extraordinary life, the life that does the greatest feats, is not the life of action or fame or wealth or discovery. It is the life of faith. And if you're a Christian, this is the life that you have been called to live. Do we understand that? We have all been called to live this. Now, you may not think of yourself as anyone great, and that's okay, because none of the people in this chapter were really all that great either. They were weak. They were nothing, really. They were human. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said this, all God's giants, and he himself in our minds, is a giant. <laughs> he says, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. Boy, I like that. 
They believed in God. They believed that God would be with them. That's how they accomplished great things. Faith lives above the ordinary. And that faith is acknowledged by God. It says here, for by it the elders obtained a good report. In essence, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, do you think my description of faith is a little too high? I'll prove it to you in this chapter by telling you about the saints of the past that received a good report because of their faith. They obtained a good report. We're coming to the end of the school year, you know. So all of you with kids are going to be getting those emails that say, uh, report cards are now posted online. <laughs> Boy, the kids today can't hide anything. You remember when you used to get yours? The teacher would hand it to you on a piece of paper, and if you could get rid of it before you got home, then mom and dad didn't have to see it. I won't ask how many of you did that. They can't do it anymore. I just get an email telling me my son's grades are online and I just can go look at them. Report card. They got a good report card. And who was doing the testifying? It's God. God's giving out the grades. God's doing the testifying. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness. There it is again. Obtained witness that he was righteous. Listen, God testifying of his gifts. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before this, his translation, he had this testimony. What? He pleased God. It was God who testified. And this is the way it is for all of us, verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Drop down to the end of the chapter, verses 39 and 40. And all these, having obtained a good report, he's summarizing back to what he said in verse 2, through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. They got a good report. A good report through faith. Listen, folks, if you want a good report to be said of you, then you have to live by faith. Will your faith win the praise of God? Would it? Does God point to you and say, now there's a man, there's a woman of faith. What kind of testimony would God give? If he's called to the witness stand, can you testify against or about this person? What's his faith like? What's her faith like? What would he say? That kind of happened to, to a man in the Old Testament. His name is Job. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And God allowed Job's faith to be tested. Why? Because he knew it would stand the test. Now I want you to think about that, folks. Every single one of these people that's in this chapter and all the others who have ever lived by faith, it was because God knew they could be counted on.
Now, if there's another assignment that needs to be handed out, and God's looking for a man or woman by faith, or of faith today, would your name come up as a candidate for that assignment? And I'm not talking about just the big things, too. We have a tendency to think about those all the time. But what about the little things that God expects you to live by faith in? Like, like praying for that lost friend of yours. And you've been praying for them for one year, two years, five, twenty. Faith. What about witnessing to your neighbor? That takes faith too. What about serving the Lord in church? What about, like Job, enduring suffering joyfully? God wants men and women of faith, and he acknowledges that faith. It's not only acknowledged by God, but it's witnessed by others. Drop down to verse 12, or chapter 12, excuse me, verse 1. So after summarizing all these people in chapter 11, he says in verse 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. That's the noun form of the verb that you found in verse 2 of chapter 11, obtained a good report. They're witnesses. These men and women of faith have become witnesses to us, witnesses of the life that can be lived by faith. And you want to know something that's, that's great here? Uh, in chapter 11, verse 32, I love how he says this. And He goes, And what shall I say more? For time would fail me to tell. And then he names a whole bunch more people, and he doesn't even tell you what they did. Time would fail me to tell. So in other words, this is only a sampling, a small sampling they're part of the great cloud of witnesses. They've lived a life of faith. Some of them even to the point of death, they triumphed. And to this list of Old Testament saints have been added the New Testament saints. And to that list have been added all the saints down through the ages who have lived by faith. A.W. Tozer says, next to the Holy Scriptures, the greatest aid to the life of faith may be Christian biography. You read the biographies of some of these great saints of the past and they'll just spur you on to keep living by faith. You see, I think the writer of Hebrews understood that and that's why he included a, a long chapter with all these examples. He wants us to view living by faith in, in technicolor. That's the way I put it. Not just a discourse on what it means to live by faith, but real, vivid life pictures. Surely, some of you are familiar with the Technicolor Company. If you've ever watched any of the old movies, not the black and white ones, but the ones that are colorized, you've probably seen their name on the credits. Color by Technicolor, it says. Technicolor was not the first company to create colorized motion pictures but they were the first to perfect it and to really make it the standard. And, and they're especially remembered for their vivid colors. Think uh, The Wizard of Oz from 1939. 
Talk about vivid colors. And that was in 1939. Now, doesn't color in movies make them far more enjoyable to watch? Even more realistic? You know, in the same way, seeing the lives of the cloud of witnesses who lived by faith helps us to understand what a life of faith looks like and to follow in their footsteps. You see, folks, they've blazed the trail before us. Now, as he says in chapter 12, verse 1, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Faith. Faith makes the difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary. Faith makes the difference between the world and the church between the unsaved and the saved. So you may not think that you're anyone special. I'm not either. It's okay. <laughs> These people weren't special either. They just took up God's call to live by faith every day. And as a result, they moved from ordinary to extraordinary. So we're going to study some of them. We don't have time to study all of them. So we'll pick a few of these out, and I hope that you can study the rest of them. Tonight was more of an introduction to the chapter, but I thought it was important that we lay the groundwork of what we're talking about here in faith. And then in the next uh, two months, we'll, we'll consider these examples, and we'll follow in their steps. That's the challenge. Because the just, the righteous, the saved, they are the ones who live by faith. That's us, my friends. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God and the challenge that it is. We thank you for the examples of Scripture. Lord, when you wrote your Bible, you didn't just give us instruction like lectures. <laughs> you gave us stories of real-life people in vivid color because we could relate to that. And so I pray, Lord, that, that we would desire to live by faith and that we would desire to be like these men and women that we find in this chapter and that we would desire to walk with you every day that we would not be of those who draw back but that we would live the different life the life that is characterized by faith challenge each of us Lord to do that and help us to walk with you in the name of Jesus we pray